Um, I wanted to continue in Pastor Kibbett's series in the Beatitudes for two reasons. Number one, as I listened to last week's message about blessed are the merciful, I thought about some things that would really be cool to add to some, some conversations that were started this week. Second, I just like that bumper, um, really. I just like the music, and, and I just wanted to come up to that. I just, that's the only reason, really, reason why I did it. All right, if you got your Bibles, we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to be looking at two verses, verses 14 and 15. But just to prepare for that, let's just kind of do a little bit of reminding what happened last week. In last week's sermon, uh, Pastor Kivett discussed Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He then gave, in my opinion, one of the best definitions for mercy. He said, mercy is compassion with redemptive action. Mercy is compassion with with redemptive action. And I want to use that today. Um, he did, near the end of his sermon, he asked the question. He said, how should a Christian, or I should say, why should a Christian be merciful? And the overall uh, answer he gave to that question is that because Christ consistently showed mercy by allowing his compassion to, to come out in redemptive redemptive activity. He shared various healing miracles, various um, things that Jesus did. Because of that, we who follow Christ should follow the same path. He then said, Christ has given us the responsibility, I like this, of being mercy agents. And that's really where we're going to go here today. We're going to talk about how. How do we do that? If you are a part of a small group or you follow our pursuit videos, um, we tried to share ways we could do that. But today we're more focused on how we can do that within the confines of our local church, within our families, in our, in our jobs. We're going to focus on that. Later, Pastor Kivett said that w- the way we can fulfill this role is by caring for physical needs and for spiritual needs. Now, I thought about it. As he was speaking, I thought, you know, of those two, Physical needs, I think, are the easiest ones to meet. Would you agree with that? Physical needs being the easiest one. And here's why I thought, thought that. Because we can see them more easily. They're more easily apparent to us. Like we can tell when somebody's struggling. We see a physical need. We're about ready to enter a Christmas time where a lot of the various local charitable organizations tell us, we don't need you at Christmas because we got everybody at Christmas. We need you in February because for some reason, charity at Valentine's Day doesn't go. We need you in March. We need you in the summer. But at Christmas time, everybody has this almost um, pent up guilt for everything going well in their life that they feel like they have to go and give to kind of placate that. And so physical needs are easy to meet. They really are. In Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, it's going to be on the screen we see that Jesus notices this. It says in the, in the passage, when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them and, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get him or get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Take a look at verse 9 and 10. Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. You see, in verse 9, Jesus is saying it's easier to meet a physical need than a spiritual one. Why? Because you can see it. You can see a physical need being met. It's easier to provide for what people need because we can often see what the need is. Spiritual needs, however, are a lot more difficult. Why? Why is that? Well, because we become very skilled, all of us, at hiding our spiritual and emotional needs. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're talking about our spiritual and emotional needs of each other. And we become very good at hiding these. How do, I, how do I know that? Well, we become all experts at making others think we have it all together. How do I know it? Because we all did it today, probably. We walked into the service. We walked into the doors. We were greeted by an usher. We were greeted by a friend. They asked us the question. What'd they ask you? How are you? And what'd you say? Fine. Can we be real here? How many of you are not fine? Don't raise your hands. <laughs> we're not fine. But we lied. Like, well, do I, do I need to repent of that? No, hang on, breathe out. We're going to get to that. But I just want to say we're skilled at this. We've become skilled at it. Why do we do this? Why do we insist on hiding our spiritual and emotional needs from one another? I got some options. I got some thoughts. Number one. Showing our vulnerabilities, they're seen as a sign of weakness. And, and weakness is often seen negatively. Are, are you with me? Showing our vulnerabilities is a sign of weakness, and weakness is seen negatively. You know what? We're afraid of how people might respond. Well, let's be honest. If you, were at the, if you walked in and the usher said, how you doing? And you just unloaded it's going to get real awkward, right? There's people behind you waiting to say hi, waiting to lie to that usher, all right? And you're in there saying, well, Tuesday, uh, okay. Eventually, the usher's going to go say those awkward words to you. Um, maybe you should talk to one of the pastors. And now you feel broken, right? Like we're the doctors that are going to come in and fix everything, okay? So maybe we're afraid of how people respond. You know, maybe it's that we've opened up ourselves to others in the past, and for one reason or another, they have not handled our hearts well. And it's that point I want to focus on today. I want to focus on that. I want to suggest to you that it's possible that it's this last reason. It's the cause for all the other reasons. People have not handled our hearts well. And here it is, ready? We, individuals, have not handled people's hearts well. So how can we do this? How can we learn to handle one another's hearts well? How can we, here it is, here's the key today. How can we show compassion with redemptive action for the spiritual or emotional needs of others? That's what we're about today. Because that is the key, isn't it? We've got to show both. We can't show compassion without redemptive action. That's not mercy. That's just pity. We can't show just action without any compassion. That's just 
doing a service. For mercy to be mercy, we've got to have a compassion for the person and an action that helps alleviate that. And with that, let's look at 1 Thessalonians 5. You got there? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. In the ESV, it reads this way. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. What Paul is commanding us to do in this passage is to take redemptive action. We're asked to admonish, encourage, help, and be patient, seeking to do good. That's the redemptive action with all types of people in all types of circumstances. Now, this morning, we're going to do things a little differently. Normally, what we would do is take a word, like we'd go sentence by sentence and word by word. We're going to flip that, all right? I'm a, I like to be a little weird sometimes. So what we're going to do today is instead of looking through each sentence in order, we're going to start by looking at the type of person in each passage and then look at how we're supposed to show redemptive action. You understand? Because each type of behavior here, each type of person, I should say, is shown a specific redemptive action that's tailor-made for their circumstance. Okay? You're, we're, not gonna, we're not asked to admonish the weak. We're not asked to encourage the idle. There's a reason why Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose these words, so we're going to take that. So let's start with the people. First, let's start by looking at the word idle. It's a neat word. When we're, when we're commanded to admonish the idle, here's what it says, the word idle. Now, your ESV says idle. Now, there's, you might have a little footnote there that helps you with it, but this word is, is a lot more than just idle. When I hear the word idle, I think of like a car, it's just idling, right? Or if I said someone was idle, they're just standing there, right? We think that idea. It's a different word. The word idle also means lazy, disorderly, or undisciplined. One translation actually says, Admonish those who are, or it says, warn those who are idle and disruptive. It has this idea here that this is not just someone who's not doing anything, but they're also doing something they shouldn't be doing. The word idle has to do with someone who's out of line. All right? So, where any elementary teachers here or who've ever been an elementary student, what's the first almost anxiety thing you got to do at the very beginning of every year? Learn how to? Be in a straight line. There's nothing. I mean, and for a guy like me in elementary, I got yelled at a lot for that. And I was Richard in elementary. They would call me by my full name. You can't, but they call me Richard. Richard, because I saw something shiny. I had to go look at it. That water fountain is fascinating. During fire drills, I'm over here. Richard, get back in line. I'm th I think I'm single-handedly the reason why a lot of schools have that rope. I'm the, I believe I'm the reason why there's that child leash that exists out there. You know, for me, if my mom had had that, she'd be a lot less stressed. But see, that's the idea here. They're getting out of line. Now, the immediate context of 1 Thessalonians can help us understand what's happening here. You see, one option for these people, why they're idle is that there were some in the church who were so convinced that Christ was going to return soon that, that they grew lazy in their daily living. 
They thought Jesus was coming back in their lifetime, so they thought, why do I need to keep up with all this stuff? If Christ is coming back soon, they thought, then why am I continuing this daily routine, the daily grind of work, marriage, parenting, and caring for one another? If Jesus is coming back this week, my lifetime, why do I care about this? And in their neglect, they became neglectful, careless in their daily responsibilities. They weren't caring for one another. They weren't loving one another. They weren't encouraging one another. One Bible teacher, Newt Larson, suggests this. He says that we live today in the reverse of that. We live today in the reverse of what these Thessalonians were doing. He writes this, Christ seems so long in coming, and life keeps rolling along at a predictable clip. We become idle in our Christian responsibilities. What do you mean? We're we're too absorbed in the daily routine. We fail to use our gifts, time, and lives for others and for the church. You, You see the opposite? Where the Thessalonians were like, well, since Christ is coming back maybe in my lifetime, why do I do this? And we are over here. It's been so long. Why why do we do anything? Why are we caring about all this? Now, there's another option. Another option for why these people were idle is that Paul is referring to the believers in Thessalonica who had refused to work to support themselves. There was actually a group there that was being lazy in their work, and they were... um, because Christians were caring for those in need, people were finding ways to be in need. Like, wait, I thought that happens now. No, that happens all the time because that's human nature, right? And people were using the charity of the church. How do we know this? It's indicated in the previous passage in verse 12 and 13, it says, where Paul writes, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, talking about elders, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. You see, rather than respecting and esteeming the hard workers, some people were taking advantage of fellow wealthy believers because of their contempt for work. They were just taking advantage. Now, there's a third option. So we have those who were thinking Jesus was coming back in their lifetime, so they're not doing anything. And there were some who didn't want to work, so they weren't doing anything. And there's this other option. The other option is that it's both groups. Both groups are being addressed in this simple word. It's quite possible that Paul is speaking to all, refu- all who refuse to do their part in this church, either because some mistaken theological thinking, they thought Jesus was going to come out right then, or because they had some kind of laziness who they would rather have somebody else do the work than them. Now, this manifests itself in different ways today. It could manifest itself in this way. Now, we, we got family worship day. Someone talk to kids first. Kids, this idea that Christian work is for the big kids, the big people, that's a myth. You can get involved right now. You can get involved right now serving the Lord. Like, what am I supposed to do? We find ways. We find what God is doing in people's lives, and we join them. My, my older line of that spectrum, there is no retirement in Christian service. You track with that? There is no, well, that's another man's game. No. I I, I read it. There's a retirement in the Christian life. Anybody know what it is? Death. Rapture. All right, we're going to be theologically accurate. Somebody said heaven. We'll go safer. All right? That's that's retirement. That's your heavenly 401k. But not, I've done my time. Have you ever heard people say that? That sounds like a prison sentence. I've done my time. 
If we see Christian life as something that you've done at Rikers, then you've got, we've got a problem. You see? Again, Newt Larson offers this. I, I like this. I, I, I found this because we're planning a mission trip with a youth group to Alaska, and I saw this, and I thought this was cool. In my mind, this is what we're going to be doing. We're going to be doing, like, dog sledding, but I don't think that's what's happening. But let me, let me live that until we get there, okay? All right, here we go. He says, an Alaskan dog musher described to me the differences between the huskies in the straps of his sled. He says, some of them are known as dishonest dogs. What does he mean by that? He said, they learn how to fake it, to pretend they're working hard by leaning against the harness without really pulling. They, they, they look like they're leaning, but they're not really doing anything. They're not really. He says, maybe we should examine ourselves to see if we are dishonest by failing to do our share of Christ's work. Maybe we're, we look like we're busy. Maybe we look like we're doing stuff, but we're really just the dishonest dog leaning into the harness without really pulling. Now, now before we go any further, um, I, f- I feel the need to pause for some clarification. Okay, you may be here this morning and following along with what I'm saying, and here's what you're thinking. You're, you're allowing the description of the person I just described to cloud your response to that person. You might be thinking something like this. Uh, these lazy bums, <laughs> these lazy bums just want to sit around while others do all the work? And they want the benefits of all the work? No, not a chance. No way. Pardon my grammar. It ain't happening, right? Get to work. Now, now this is why I wanted to start by describing the person first. I wanted to start by describing the person first because when I give you the redemptive action, Paul's not asking us to give these people what they deserve by our standards. You understand what I'm saying? He's not telling us to respond to them in a way that's based on our standards. He's actually asking us to refuse to do that. Instead, he's asking us to show mercy by refusing to give them what we feel they deserve. And it's this place, and in this place, he's asking us to give them something that's good for them and the good for the entire body. Now, this, this idol disorderly, undisciplined way of living is disruptive to the local church. That's why Paul says we need to admonish them. This kind of of idle disorderliness can cause resentment on the part of people who are doing a lot of work. You've been there? You've been there? I'm going to confess, I've been there. I was there last Christmas. You, You don't remember this, but I remember it. I remember this because I let it happen to me. We were in here decorating for Christmas, and everybody was given jobs. And I was thinking, and they had snacks in the fellowship hall, remember that? I've confessed this already, forgive me. So I started doing the work, and I started seeing people coming back with snacks and eating, a lot of pe- people eating, and I'm like, well, there's th- where's the tree? So by the time my work was done, I went to go get my snack. Guess what happened? No snacks. And I'm like, what? I mean, I started walking behind people, like, you done with that cookie? You want to give it to somebody who worked? You, right, right? you see what I did? Listen, I'm not doing this to bash you, because you know, it wasn't you. They were, they, they're not here today. Here's what it was. <laughs> and I don't have names. Here's, who, here's what it was. It was my resentment. It was my heart that was the problem. Right? Rick, you could have gotten off the ladder and gotten a biscuit. Right? I let resentment call... And, it was a problem. I had to repent. 
I'd repent of this because it was a sin of mine. See what I did? I let it get to me. Paul tells these things. He says, if this resentment can lead to a bitterness. So number one, if it's you, if, if you are resentful for those who you feel are idle, then, then you need to work through that. But sometimes an idleness needs to be addressed. And by the way, decorating the Christmas wasn't what needed to be addressed. I needed to get over it. But here's the things that need to be addressed. He says admonish. The word admonish means to advise someone about avoiding wrongdoing. That, see, admonish doesn't mean you tell them how you feel. That phrase of, i got to get this out. You ever said that? One time I said that to my wife. I said, honey, i got to say this. And she goes, do you? No, I don't. You see the idea? We feel like we've got to say something. That's not admonishing. Admonishing is advising someone about avoiding wrongdoing. Jill's words, do you? That was an admonishment to me. Hey, you better not. It may not go well. You see, it refers to warning someone about the disastrous consequences of his or her actions. That's what the definition is. When we choose to warn these lazy believers of the consequences of their actions, we're actually extending mercy to them. We're giving them the chance to see their wrong, acknowledge it as wrong, repent, and go in the opposite direction. It's mercy. Paul is asking, here's the key, Paul is asking us to talk to the person, not about the person. That's the difference, isn't it? Talk to the person, not about the person. He's asking us to refuse to leave them to their just desserts. They made their bed, let them lay in it or the consequences of their sinful actions. He's asking us instead to lovingly confront our fellow brothers and sisters in order to encourage them and give them the opportunity to change. Do you see what it means to admonish the idol? It's not going off on them. It's not unloading the clip. It's not coming in with both barrels. It's lovingly encouraging them, and I would even add privately, so that they can be warned of this and go in the different direction. What if they don't listen? It's not your call. That's not your call. Your call is to lovingly confront. You with me? All right, let's move to the next one. We're also told to encourage the faint-hearted. This word faint-hearted is the word that means timid or discouraged. It's a word that we we know pretty well. And, And again, the immediate context of the passage helps us to understand who these are. Um, it could be that they're timid because they're facing persecution. Uh, we see this in verse 214 of 1 Thessalonians. He says, For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen. They were going through some kind of persecution, and maybe that's the reason why they're timid. Maybe that's the reason why they're discouraged. Maybe that's why they're faint-hearted, because they face persecution. Verse 3, 1 through 5 also says, Therefore, we could bear it no longer. We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer... Ascent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter attempted you and your labor would be in vain. 
Paul is saying that maybe the persecution, the suffering that you're facing was causing you to become faint-hearted and discouraged. And like a loving father, I couldn't wait to hear. I couldn't bear it. I had to find out. Now, also from the context of this letter, this faint-hearted group could be those who were grieving the fate of, the, of their deceased believers or family members at Christ's return. There were some that had gone into the church. This church had been troubled by a teaching. Some teachers had crept in and started teaching that their, um, their loved ones who died before Christ's return would miss out on all the kingdom promises. It's like, basically, stay alive till Jesus comes and you're good. You die, you miss it. That's what they were taught. Now, you might be thinking, well, how didn't they know better? They didn't have 1 Thessalonians, verse chapter 4, that says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers. Those who have fallen asleep will not precede those who are alive. He says that in the text. Paul has to encourage them. And again, here we see the dangers of any kind of mistaken theology. Now, either way, or both, these faint-hearted were those in the church who had grown discouraged, maybe even depressed. And those are words we don't like to talk about. Like, ooh, that, that, those, word, those words have meaning and connotation, dis- depressed. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake. Our church today, this morning, we have faint-hearted people in these seats. Hey, I'll let you know a secret. There's a faint-hearted person in the pulpit. Like, what? How do I know this? Because we all have been faint-hearted. We all experience this. We all have. We've all been here from time to time. There's a biblical counselor named Mike Emlett. He's the, um, the founder, or sorry, I should say the um, dean of the faculty of C- uh, CCEF, which is the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation. He wrote an article, and in it, it's an open letter. And he writes an open letter to those who struggle and are faint-hearted. I, I want to share it with us today. He says, dearest brother, I know you're discouraged and distressed this morning. The trials and temptations you faced this past week have brought you low. Suffering clouds your vision. Sin's hangover, guilt, shame, and doubt still pounds in your soul. The hardships you face and the failures you recounted to me loom large in your life. They seem to be what is most true, most real, and most compelling about your experience as a Christian right now. Did you catch that? There's a lot of things happening right there. But I I'm, I'm firmly believe that's everybody in this room. It's, it's got to be. And those are the truths that we believe are true for us right now. He says, I know you've prayed about these things. You're seeking to honor Christ amidst your difficulties. And trying your best to take loving, constructive steps in your conscientious relationship, or in your contentious relationship, I'm sorry. I know you've asked for forgiveness for choosing to give in to desires that took you from God's good and ancient life-giving path. In spite of this, you remain heavy-hearted and downcast. You ever been there? where you've had the heavy-hearted, the downcast, that, that faint-hearted feeling, and you've done everything everybody told you to do. You've memorized every verse. You've, you've read every book. And by the way, everybody has a book for you to read when you're going through this. And I think of Solomon, of much books, right? 
But we still feel that way. We're still there in the struggle. We still feel like we're in a pit. You see, Paul tells us that these people, the faint-hearted, we need to be helped, not warned. We need to be helped. What, what does that mean? What does that help mean? What does that word encourage mean? It's a really cool word. Here's what it means. It means to console, to comfort. Paul tells us to encourage, comfort, console those struggling this way. And immediately the context is, again, those people who are dealing with present struggles or future worries. The present struggles are the ones who are going through persecution right now. The future worries are the ones who are worried about their own lives and the lives of others. For whatever reason, these anxious believers are in desperate need of consoling. And that's where you and I run into a wall. How do we, who are often faint-hearted, discouraged, how do we encourage people who are faint-hearted and discouraged? Who are we? How do we do this? I want to go back to Mike Emlet's letter here in a moment, because in that same letter, he encourages his audience to look to Christ and embrace their identity in Christ rather than trying to figure out how to do this. Because here's the thing, too often we look for quick fixes. We look for quick cliches on how to encourage people. Hang in there. You can do it. Keep holding on. You got this, right? Now, even though it's good to encourage this way, what often goes unsaid is that you can't do it in your own strength. Or you don't got this, but Jesus does. That's where we should be encouraging. Not you can do this, you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, but you can't. Jesus has this. Jesus should be the source of any encouragement we give to ourselves or any other people who are faint-hearted. Well, how do we do that? Brothers and sisters, if you face suffering, if you face suffering and difficulty, you face it with Jesus and in Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? You're not facing this alone. You battle your sin with Jesus and in Jesus. Let your relationship, your identity, your relationship to Christ shape how you see the circumstances of your life. As I've said before, don't let the circumstances define your theology, how you think about God. Let your theology define your circumstances. That's how you have to do it. The other way is the flesh way. If I'm going through this, then God must be this. Reverse it. If God is this, then what I'm going through must be for His glory and my good, no matter how much it hurts. Emlet ends his letter with this closing. Here it is. So in your discouragement today, lift up your eyes and see your gracious King's unchangeable countenance of love toward you. That's a $10 phrase right there, isn't it, guys? That's beautiful. Bask in His mercy. He cleaves to you with bonds of steel-hard, covenant-tempered grace. He will never let you go. When you're tempted to experience your chief identity as a sufferer or a sinner, remember that you are most defined by your relationship with Jesus and not by something inherent in yourself or in your world, whether good or bad. In Him, here's your mental tattoo for the day. 
in him, you begin and end every day as a beloved saint. Friends, encourage yourself and others through your identity as a beloved son or daughter of God through Christ. We're asked to help the weak. What does that mean, helping the weak? The weak is used to describe someone who's, or something of weak or limited capacity due to some kind of illness or limitation. Now, these Thessalonians were weak because they were experiencing persecution and false teachings. I mean, these outside conditions they were facing led them to be kind of the things we say today. They're saying things like, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. This persecution, these false teachings, I'm done. Or, I can't even, whatever. I can't. And, and much like the faint-hearted, guys, we're likely to fall in this category too. Now, by virtue of us being human and limited in our capacities, our physical, mental, emotional abilities, we all come to the place of weakness and limitation. All of us do. Now, we'll all undoubtedly get to the point where we've reached the limit of our mental, physical, emotional strength and not able to go on any further. And it's at that moment we need one another because look what he says, we're supposed to help. Help. The word help means be devoted to or to sustain. All right, well, what do you mean? It's the word Jesus used in, in Luke 16, 13. And in Luke 16, 13, he says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted, there's that word for help, to the one and despise the other. But you can't serve God and money. This idea of, of help means be devoted to, to sustain. Paul in Titus 1, 9 talks about the elder pastor must hold firm there's the word for help, to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and to also to rebuke those who contradict it. So you have this idea of holding firm, be devoted, but the perfect example of help is not found in the New Testament. It's found in Exodus chapter 17. You might know the passage. In verses 11 through 12, we know the story where the people of Israel fought against the Amalekites. And remember the story that every time Moses had his hands up, the people of Israel won. And every time he dropped him, the Amalekites won. So what happened? Look what happens. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amal Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. Why? Because he's a man. He's got physical capabil uh, limited, limited capabilities. So Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands one on one side, the other on the other. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Friends, that's what we need. What we and others need during our inevitable times of weakness is for someone to come alongside of us and hold up our arms during trying times. That's all we need. It may mean you showing up at a person's house who just lost a loved one, and you don't come in with cliches. You just sit quietly. I'm here if you need me. If you want to cry, let's cry. If you want to laugh, we can laugh. I'm here for you. I'm not going to let you be alone during this time. If you want me to leave, I'll leave. But I'm here when you need me. That's what it means to help. But then we, we wrap it up with this idea of being patient with them all. This them all in this passage is referring to all the types of people we just mentioned. The weak, the idle, the faint-hearted. In all these circumstances, we're called to be patient. This word patient means to exhibit external and internal control during difficult circumstances. 
When we work and serve with other people and serve other people on this emotional helping level, we can experience times of frustration. Have you been there? Have you helped people through a tough time and then you feel like you're wearing it? You see, this is ministry. Doing this, encouraging the weak, admonishing the idle, I'm sorry, encouraging the faint-hearted and helping the weak, these are, this is ministry, and ministry is hard work. We're going to deal with people who have matured differently than we have. Right now, we got different age groups in this building, and we got to be okay with that. we got different temperaments in this building. We've got to be okay with that. These differences drastically affect how we minister to one another. No matter the differences, though, we're called to exhibit patience. Here's why. Look at it. The idle, those lazy, disorderly, disruptive people, we're called to warn them and instruct them, and they may not listen right away. They may not. They may ignore you. They may start making passive-aggressive comments about you on social media. You've got to just hold it. Take a knee here. The faint-hearted we're called to encourage may not, insh- may not show immediate improvement. Matter of fact, I get worried if I'm trying to encourage a faint-hearted person, and after like four or five words, they're like, thank you, I feel better now. Okay, something's wrong. Sounds like you're faking it. The weak we're called to help may not be willing to accept our help, or they may ignore us altogether. Whenever that happens, we're not called to retaliate. We're not called to turn our backs on them with that, you made your bed, now lie in it attitude. We're called to help them, encourage them, admonish them, and be patient with love and care. And this entire passage is summed up in the last command. Look at it. Seek to do what's good to one another and to everyone. You see, in this passage, we've seen different types of struggling people. We've seen types of people we live and interact with every day. There are our friends. They are our fellow church members. They are your pastors. They are your spouses, parents, and children, all of us in this room. The point here is that no one, no matter what, has it all together. We all have these problems. And we've got to keep that in mind as we interact with people every day. In all this, we're called to seek to do good for all of these lives. Friends, we've got to extend our love for one another. We've got to extend to others the same goodness that Jesus showed us. This is what it means to show mercy. This is what it means to show compassion with redemptive action. And this is what Jesus has shown us. Think about it for a minute. Before Christ, we were all idle, disorderly, and disruptive. Ephesians 2, Paul describes our life this way. We were dead in the trespasses of our sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our desires, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If that's not idle, disruptive, disorderly, I don't know what is. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ. We were also faint-hearted. In the same book, Ephesians 2, we see in 12 through 13, Paul describes our lives apart from Christ's salvation as separated from Christ, alienated, strangers to the covenants of promise, 
having no hope and without God in the world. We were faint-hearted. But now in Christ, you who have been brought near, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were weak. Romans 5, verse 6 tells us that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Do, do you get it? Brothers and sisters, when we show mercy, this compassion with redemptive action towards others, we're more like Christ than we could ever be on this earth. We're more like Christ than we could ever be on this planet when we're showing mercy with redemptive action. So, may we commit to reflect our Lord and Savior every day through admonishing the idle, the admonishing the disorderly, encouraging those faint-hearted, helping the weak, while acting in loving patience with them all. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. And Father, thank you for the, the conviction that it brings. Father, I pray for forgiveness for how I have allowed the way I've handled people. Lord, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm really good at admonishing the idol, but not with patience. Father, I struggle to encourage the faint-hearted and helping the weak. And Father, my patience is thin. But Lord, from your word today, I've been challenged that if I want to be Christ-like, I need to be proactive in this. Not just doing what comes naturally to my sinfulness, but to do what comes supernaturally only through your Spirit. So Lord, I pray for me that you'd help me to, to encourage, to help, to be patient, and to admonish in love and patience. Father, I've also been challenged today because I have been all of these. I've been idle. I've been faint-hearted, weak. And Father, it's not something that's just a past tense thing. It's something I, it's, like, it's a cycle. I go back to it. On any given day, I can be idle, faint-hearted, and weak. And Father, because of that, help me to extend grace and mercy to my brothers and sisters. It's, it's hypocritical when I think that I, I've got it all together and they should too, and I don't. Or if I feel like I, I'm okay to experience this, but they shouldn't. That's, that's hypocrisy, Lord. God, I pray that you would change my heart. But I also pray in the lives of my friends in this room that you would make us more like your son Jesus by, by how we admonish encourage, help, and patient so that we can be those mercy agents that we're called to be so that we can show compassion with redemptive action in our homes, our marriages, with our children, at our places of work, in this church, so that when anybody thinks of Salem Baptist Church and the people who make it up, they think of mercy agents. We pray this to the glory of your son's great name. Amen.